0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Above the hills between Los Angeles and Ventura counties, decades of nuclear experimental work and rocket testing at Rockodyne, now known as Santa Susana Field Lab, has led to radioactive chemical and heavy metal contamination and presents a grave hazard to neighbouring communities, which are now only two miles from this site. The construction and operation of the site and the refusal of Boeing, the Department of Energy and NASA, the responsible parties to clean it up is unconscionable and idiotic. The 10 nuclear facilities on site had no containment structures. When a partial meltdown occurred, In July 59, they continued to operate their reactor for over two weeks. It was one of the world's worst nuclear accidents with readings off scale and estimated to be 240 times greater than the radioactivity released from Three Mile Island. Reactor accidents occurred in 64 and 69 and rocket testing released TCE and other toxins into the air. Toxic waste disposal included open burn pits and exploding waste barrels. This recklessness continues Last year, the DOE blew up buildings on site with no precautions, sending toxins into the air. Under an agreement between Boeing in 2007 and the DOE and NASA in 2010, the site was meant to have been cleaned up by 2017 to background levels, or safe enough for people to live on and eat from. This standard is necessary because the contamination can easily migrate to where people live and eat, not in the least because it sits atop watersheds and the head of the Los Angeles River. It's also in a fire zone. The 2018 Woolsey Fire started at the site in part because proper fire precautions were not taken. Another unconscionable and idiotic move and dumped radioactive dust and ash across LA. Unsurprisingly, people got sick, including with brain cancer. Many people, including children, have suffered from autoimmune disease and rare cancers from this site and many have lost their lives. Boeing's own study in 2015 concluded that if 100 people lived on site and ate the food grown there, 96 would get cancer. It also maintains it's perfectly safe to hike there, and you can schedule a tour of this toxic wasteland with Boeing as long as you sign a waiver and assume all risk to your health from doing so. Rather than spending money on cleaning this site up, Boeing has spent millions on lobbying, litigation, and a greenwashing campaign. In 2007, California enacted a law, SB 990, that required the site to be cleaned up to background levels in accordance with the consent agreements. Boeing sued California, claiming the law was unconstitutional. One of its arguments was that it violated Boeing's 14th Amendment rights, as other sites in California were worse, and because the local communities had petitioned their government, as is their First Amendment right to do so, because they no longer wanted to see their loved ones suffer from cancer or lose them to it. Meanwhile, Boeing spends millions on lobbying. Its lobbyists included people formerly in high office of the Cal EPA, the governor's staff, the LA Regional Water Board, and the Department of Toxic Substances Control. If we are to have our regulators regulate the companies per their mandate, we need to restrict the movement of the revolving door between our government agencies and the companies they oversee or we will see this same sorted story play out again and again. The Stygian situation at Santa Susana is a case study in regulatory capture. This year, the DTSC signed an in-camera settlement agreeing to Boeing's terms that the site does not have to be cleaned up to background levels. Boeing wants the site to be limited to a conservation zone because that would mean less human exposure hours and therefore less of a cleanup. This is unfortunately a tactic used by many Superfund responsible parties which save millions in cleanup costs, tout their supposed environmental values and even get tax breaks, all for conserving toxicity. The DOE and NASA have also neglected to clean up their areas, and this story is just all too common. The United States is a wasteland of tens of thousands of toxic sites, mostly located around poor communities of color and First Nation land. It's time for our governments to clean up their act and these toxic sites. We can never get back the people can never get back the children who lost their lives because we failed to act. But if we act now, we can prevent other people losing their lives, other children losing their childhoods, and other parents having to bury their children. To fail to do so is unconscionable and an abdication of government. I spoke with Dan Hirsch, President of the Committee to Bridge the Gap, Denise Duffield, the Associate Director of the LA Chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and Melissa Bumstead, who founded the Parents Against Santa Susana Field Lab, on these Stygian issues. Welcome to Gravity, Dan, Denise, and Melissa. Dan, you are the co-founder and president of the committee to bridge the gap. May you please let our audience know about your organization's mission and its activities.
1: For about 40 years, we have focused on the nuclear threat both from nuclear weapons and from other technologies that proliferate nuclear weapons and produce uh, high-level radioactive waste that's dangerous for tens of thousands of years and carry with it also the risks of accidents and releases of radioactivity. So the bulk of our work, we are 52 years old now, but for most of those years we have focused on the nuclear threat.
0: Dan, do you want to tell us about the history of dissent at Susanna Field Lab, because in um, 1979, uh, the Committee to Bridge the Gap disclosed that there was a partial nuclear meltdown in 1959 that apparently no one seemed to know about.
1: So I was teaching at UCLA in 1979 and also working with the Committee to Bridge the Gap, with which I'm still associated And a nuclear power accident occurred at the Three Mile Island reactor in Pennsylvania. Students working with me wanted to investigate whether there were any nuclear problems in the Los Angeles area. And so they relatively quickly uncovered documents showing that there had been a partial nuclear meltdown at a reactor um, on the Los Angeles-Ventura County border border. Uh, In 1959, that had been kept secret uh, until my students uncovered it. Um, It had no containment structure like a modern reactor. They were intentionally venting the radioactivity into the environment for weeks. And we then took that story to uh, NBC, uh, which ran it for a week. And that was the first that the public had learned that there had been a significant nuclear accident in the Los Angeles area.
0: Which uh, the government did not disclose. In fact, I think at the time they uh, went on TV and said, oh, no one's to worry about anything. Nothing happened. Everything's all good. No one is harmed.
1: Well, they were silent about the accident for five weeks. And after five weeks, they issued a very misleading press release, embargoed for Saturday morning newspapers, which is... Um, even today, a way of trying to bury a story, but, um, you know, Friday news dump, but um, then even more so because Saturday papers were much smaller than any other paper for the week. And the press release didn't indicate there'd been any melting, any radiation release. It said that a parted fuel element had been observed, single fuel element, parted, not melted, that there were no evidences of um, unsafe operating conditions when the that clearly was what was going on and that there were no radiation releases when they were, in fact, at the very moment of the press release, venting radioactive gases into the environment.
0: Yeah. And when I was reading the court documents for the matter when Boeing sued uh, the Department of um, Toxic Substances Control and there were um, the statement of undisputed facts, one of the undisputed facts of the parties was that over 240 times more radioactive uh, material was emitted during this accident than um, at Three Mile Island, which is supposedly our worst nuclear disaster. So this is America's worst nuclear disaster.
1: It's a bit of a complex issue. The Three Mile Island reactor was very much larger than the Santa Susana reactor, um, but it had a containment structure. And that containment structure largely held during the accident. The official estimates of how much radioactive iodine, which is one of the most um, biologically active radioactive materials, uh, suggests that um, uh, the uh, SRE, the sodium reactor experiment at San Susana, uh, released up to 240 times more radioactive iodine then uh, did TMI so it is a little bit of uh, apples and oranges it was a larger reactor in Pennsylvania but it had a containment structure so it's like what is more dangerous a um, large truck whose brakes are working or a small uh, VW with no brakes the SRE at Santa Susana had essentially no brakes no containment structure And therefore, they had to intentionally vent the radioactive gases into the atmosphere. Uh, So there's significant um, evidence that that accident was worse than the Three Mile Island accident, but the Three Mile Island reactor was much larger.
0: Right. And it wasn't just this accident. We are talking about rocket testing and other activities by uh, the federal government over decades that have resulted in contamination of the land. What kind of contamination are we talking about?
1: Well, in addition to the sodium reactor experiment, the one that had the partial meltdown, there were nine other reactors at the property, and of those, an additional three had serious accidents involving fuel damage. Um, additionally, there was a plutonium fuel fabrication facility. Plutonium is amongst the most dangerous materials on Earth, and there were releases of plutonium from that facility. There was a hot lab where irradiated nuclear fuel, highly radioactive fuel from around the country, shipped into the Southern California area and cut apart in the hot lab, and there were radioactive fires there that released radioactivity. There was, um, uh, in addition, um, uh, open air burning, both of radioactive waste and of toxic chemicals. They took uh, dozens of barrels of toxic waste each month to an open pit where they would ignite the toxic materials, often by firing at them with rifles. And large plumes of uh, toxic smoke would then fall out over the surrounding area. There were between twenty and 30,000 rocket and nuclear missile tests at the site, and these produced large amounts of toxic chemical contamination as well. For example, they would flush out the rocket engines after each test, with trichloroethylene, TCE, a very toxic solvent. They used a million gallons of TCE to flush out the engines over the years and then just let it percolate into the ground. So the estimates are there are about half a million gallons of TCE in the groundwater and in the soil, and we measure permissible concentrations in a few parts per billion. So there's volatile organics, semi-volatile organics, perchlorate, a very toxic component of solid rocket fuels, heavy metals, um, PCBs, dioxins, in addition to the radioactive materials like strontium-90, cesium-137, plutonium-239. It's a witch's brew of very, very dangerous materials.
0: And Santa Susana uh, originally was 30 miles from uh, a population, from Ventura and Los Angeles counties, I believe, from from the population there. But now some people live two miles away. There's over half a million people living 10 miles away. And nobody knew when they were coming in that they were living next to this toxic site.
1: The site was supposed to be selected in the 1940s as an area that was remote, a field laboratory for work too dangerous to do in populated areas. But they actually cut corners even then. Um, It was ranked fifth out of sixth for meteorological safety because the winds would tend to carry the contamination to heavily populated areas. They overrode that concern in part because um, the driving time to UCLA was shorter than for some of the other facilities that were being considered, and they wanted to make it convenient for people from UCLA nuclear engineering to get to the uh, field lab. But what is particularly true is that since the 1940s, the population in Southern California and therefore around the field lab has absolutely mushroomed. So there are now more than 700,000 people living within 10 miles. And, of course, a substantial number of those live within two miles. So uh, the contamination that is on that site doesn't stay on the site. It's up on a hill, and gravity does work. And so when the rains come, gravity carries the contaminated stormwater downstream to where people are living. It is the headwaters of the Los Angeles River. Um, The runoff percolates into the groundwater that is being used in some communities for their drinking water. And when the wind blows, it carries the contamination as well off-site. And if there's a fire as occurred a few years ago, the Woolsey Canyon Fire, which began at the field lab, uh, the fire can loft into the air large amounts of radioactive and toxic chemicals, and the wind then carry that to people substantial distances away.
0: Mm. And it seems that even in the past couple of years, knowing the history of contaminants in the area, uh, the federal government... And Boeing, I think, as well, just blew up some sites there with no safety measures, which seems a little crazy to me that they would do that, that they would blow up contaminated sites because wouldn't that just release all the contaminants into the air, which would then travel through the wind down to where people live? Or am I, I mean, I don't have a science background, but it just seems like common sense to me.
1: The conscious disregard for safety that occurred in the 50s and 60s and 70s has not stopped. The very same attitude that contaminated the site is now at play in the uh, responsible parties, those parties that are responsible for the contamination, in the cavalier way in which they are refusing to clean up the site And at the same time, when they are taking down their buildings, they have taken some of those buildings down explosively, I mean, putting explosives into radioactive buildings to blow them up uh, in the open air. Um, It is just uh, an extraordinary lack of conscience, Um, as though the environment doesn't exist and people living nearby don't exist. And it was almost as though they were thumbing their nose at people who are concerned about safety. You're concerned about safety, they say? Well, fine. We'll blow up radioactive buildings in the open air.
0: Denise, would you please be able to tell us how Physicians for Social Responsibility, the LA chapter, got involved with the cleanup effort for Santa Susana Field Lab and how it supports your organization's mission?
2: Well, our organization uh, has been involved really since the beginning of the community fight um, led by uh, Dan and his students, or the beginning of the the discovery of the of the meltdown and all the uh, revelations that happened after that. Our board uh, founder, Dr. Richard Saxon, also was a Valley resident, so this was of concern to him. Um, we joined with other uh, with the uh, other community members and other organizations under the Rocketdyne Cleanup Coalition. Um, in the late 80s, um, which was initially meant to just, to to shut down the, um, uh, to stop the hot lab from being relicensed and was successful in doing so. And then set about other um, missions in terms of the health studies, Um, but the cleanup is the one thing that has evaded us all since. And our mission, of course, is to protect public health from environmental and nuclear threats. So Santa Susana falls squarely within that mission. Um, we like to pair health professionals, sort of the authoritative, credible voice of health professionals, with the voice of real-life impacted frontline community members, and that combination of 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 medical um, information um, and real lived experiences can be very powerful. Um, many times, community members will come forth, that, as Melissa have, noticing cancers in their family, more cancers than they think are usual, in this case, you know, really rare cancers all affecting children. Um, And they go and talk to agencies and public officials and people will sometimes dismiss them. But when a health professional stands next to them, as Dr. Richard Saxon did, as Dr. Robert Dodge does, our new board president, Dr. Jimmy Hara, and says, hey, um, these contaminants on this site, are capable of causing the very kinds of cancers that we're seeing now in, in the community. It makes a difference. It really does. And so um, it's, you know, squarely within our organization's mission and um, a fight that we will will continue with um, as long as it goes.
0: Yeah, we need to keep fighting. And it seems that we have to keep fighting because uh, even though the cleanup was meant to have been completed by 2017, it seems to have hardly started. Melissa, you call yourself an accidental activist and Santa Susana is not only a fight for your community, but also for your family. Can you tell us how you found out about the Santa Susana Field Lab and how you got involved in the cleanup? I'd be happy to. Um, I,
3: I grew up in Ventura County, about five miles or less from the Santa Susana Field Lab. And uh, both of my parents are grew up in the valley and in Simi Valley, and even though my my mom ended up having a brain tumor at forty, nobody you know ever said anything about the Santa Susana Field Lab. And then when I was seventeen, I had a really rare autoimmune disease. Um, they ended up taking out my spleen, and I'm I'm not making this up. I had three spleens. They said they've never seen anything like that before, um, and nobody ever said, I wonder, you know, I wonder if it has anything to do with the radiation at the Santa Susana field lab, you know, like a real life, real life mutant spleen. Um, it wasn't until I got married and, um, started a family and my husband and I moved on the other side, on the Los Angeles side of the mountain. Um, when my daughter was four, she started bruising all over and she was a very active little girl. So the doctor wasn't worried. Um, but you know, my, my mother's instinct just didn't feel right. And she's, her bruises started to become horrific, like, like car crash level bruises on her body. And so I brought her back and found out, um, that not only did she have leukemia, she had an incredibly rare type of leukemia. And, um, thankfully because of children's hospital, Los Angeles, they got her on a clinical trial. They saved her life. Um, my husband and I, and my son, you know, are obviously so grateful but it was through living at the hospital. We spent a huge amount of time actually living at the hospital because her chemotherapy was so intense that um, she often had to live there, you know, weeks at a time. Um, We just naturally started to meet other parents. And I would just, you know, like in the, they have a children's playroom on the cancer floor and be like, oh, where are you guys from? And I remember the first family we met, they're like, oh, we live by El Camino High School. And I was like, Oh, that's our local high school. That's strange. You know, pediatric cancer is rare. And then we met um, a, a lady who said she recognized us from the park, and I was like, "That's impossible because childhood cancer is rare. You're not you're not supposed to. You you can't. That you, you're wrong. You know. I I pretty much told her that at the hospital. And um, I went back to the photos that I had taken that day at the park that she had mentioned, and she and her daughter were in the background of all of them. Her daughter hadn't been diagnosed with cancer yet. And her daughter, Bailey, and my daughter, Grace, ended up becoming close friends, even though they had a two-year age gap, two years old and four years old. They were both just very sparkly little girls. They loved tutus. They were very bossy. Um, they were just wonderful together. And, and Bailey ended up dying um, 18 months after she was diagnosed. Then we met Lauren Hammersley, and we met um, her daughter, Hazel. And I just, I remember the the thing that started to eat in the back of my brain was when I asked Lauren, oh yeah, where, you know, where are you guys from? And she said, Simi Valley. I bet that's only five miles away from you as the crow flies. And, and that started to concern me because pediatric cancer is so rare that not only do they not get funding for that type of cancer, for pediatric cancers in general, because it's just considered too rare, um, there's only 15,000 new cases in America each year out of 72 million children. So even though Children's Hospital is a very busy hospital, it just seems strange that we kept meeting people. You know, we started meeting kids. Oh, yeah, just one block over, one block behind us, one block down on our same avenue. And um, that that started to feel frightening. So we started mapping ourselves on Google Maps and realized we all lived in a big circle. and we couldn't tell, you know, it was just the mountains in the middle. And we were really kind of confused by that. And and that was actually the first time my whole life that I'd ever learned about the Santa Susana field, field.
0: That is a truly tragic story. It is. And and I don't, I tell it so many times I forget that there's
3: tears involved. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I feel like I'm telling someone else's story. And so I I appreciate your sensitivity and your tears because sometimes I, I just get jaded. I, I say it so many times that I'm afraid you know I'm afraid to have the feelings with it. so I just want to say thank you for for showing the appropriate emotion because Bailey was really special. Hazel died. Hazel was really special. Um, we we gracie Gracie buried three of her friends, close friends, not not just people we knew. We know we know about fourteen children who've died at the hospital who live in our community that that I recognized from the hallways but three of them were close friends to grace and and sometimes sometimes i just can't let that devastation in because it's too painful but it is the right emotion
0: i mean no 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 parent should have to bury their child or it's there are no words to describe what's been happening there's a lot of emotions there's there's sadness but there's also anger there's anger and anger can be productive because we can't have apathy right we need to stop these things in our community. And so when you read that, for instance, Boeing has nature hikes and um, they invited the Girl Scouts to go and plant oak trees on this site. And obviously I'm sure any Girl Scout that would have come had to sign, say, a waiver. Parents would have had to sign a waiver for their child because of the health risks involved. And so it is 2022. It is actually nearly 2023, right, because we're um, in the middle of October um and this site is still contaminated and um I know that in 2007 there were consent orders and so the responsible parties the parties that had control of the land so that would be NASA the Department of Energy and uh Boeing that they had agreed to and please correct me if I'm wrong to clean up the area so that it would be back-to-background levels. And so people could live there, they could eat the food that they made there, and, um, and if I guess that area is safe enough to live and eat from, then um, the surrounding communities would also be safe because there would be no chemicals to migrate from there. And yet that was challenged and Boeing actually took uh, California to court over a law that would have made them clean up Uh, to background levels, and they actually claimed – that they were discriminated against and that they weren't provided due process. So uh, under the 14th Amendment, they also claimed derivative immunity because they said, well, it was actually the federal government doing everything. So if the federal government is immune and so we're immune too. But this is one of the, and I say this a lot on the podcast, that um, these are the problems with uh, good laws. The 14th Amendment, it's a great law. It's great that we have an equal protection clause, that we have the due process clause part of the 14th Amendment. But when you have a justice system where to enter the court, and to continue to litigate. You need a lot of resources. You need a lot of money. And so corporations come in, they utilize the First Amendment to their advantage. They utilize the 14th Amendment to their advantage. And Boeing won. That Ninth Circuit decision is horrendous. I mean, actually, the 14th Amendment um, analysis is um, very sparse. It's, in fact, skeletal. Um, And I am still trying to understand how uh, when there's a rational reason for saying that um, this area has to be cleaned up um, to protect human health and animal health and just the environment generally, right? That And it's the only site in California that has had a partial meltdown. That seems a rational reason to me to provide disparate treatment. So I, I just remain astounded that Boeing won that case and uh, I I just remain astounded that California has not done enough. Um, Can you please elaborate what happened um, with the 2007 consent orders and why we're nowhere closer to the cleanup?
1: Well, let me first respond about the lawsuit. So the lawsuit had to do with a law passed by the state legislature and signed by the governor called SB 990, and it required the cleanup of the San Susana facility to the most protective EPA standard. Um, and that would be a standard for unrestricted residential release or agricultural use. In fact, the field lab before it became a field lab was a farm. and There are um, agricultural uses and residential uses all around it. So that law would have survived just fine. It was uh, had no real problems with it. Boeing sued, um, as is their way. Um, they just are, will try to obstruct any uh, requirement that they meet their obligations to protect the neighboring population.
0: And, but the suit had
1: very little chance of success for some of the reasons that you've identified. Um, and Boeing is uh, two faced, um, for example. In the lawsuit, it claimed that every bit of the contamination was done pursuant to work for the government, and so it was some um, federal activity. Um, they now are claiming, for the, in a separate lawsuits, that the buildings they have that are contaminated are purely Boeing buildings, and therefore not subject to the agreement the federal government signed about the disposal of waste from those buildings having to go to licensed radioactive waste disposal sites. But the reason that that lawsuit was lost is something that has almost never been told. And that is within a few weeks of Jerry Brown becoming governor the second time around, um, uh, Boeing had some lobbyists who had been former key aides to Brown when he was governor the first time. And within a few weeks of being sworn in, the Brown administration signed very quietly a stipulation with Boeing in which the state agreed to not dispute any purported material fact that Boeing might subsequently, sometime in the future, put forward before the court in a motion for what's called summary judgment in which you resolve the issue solely on the basis of the law and you assert that there are no disputes regarding any material fact. The state, without seeing any of the facts that Boeing might claim, gave up the right to dispute any of them. It is like two boxers who are going to be in a boxing match um, a few weeks before the match meeting, and one of them agreeing that 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 boxer will not defend himself and will not punch back. Every lawyer that I have shown this stipulation to have said, has said that they've never seen such a deal. It's basically throwing the case. And when I showed the stipulation to the secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency, her general counsel, the uh, deputy secretary, the uh, acting director of the toxics agency, all of them holdovers from the prior administration, they turned white. They um, were absolutely shocked because they were technically the client. And this had been done behind their backs without their knowledge or approval. So that case, which um, is on the books and does a great deal of damage, uh, was not uh, really resolved based on um, the facts of the case. But on the Brown administration agreeing to not defend itself, not defend that law, and not dispute any asserted fact that Boeing might put forward. It's really extraordinarily shocking, but it is the pattern that we've seen of behind-closed-door deals cut between the government and this powerful polluter Boeing.
0: Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right that um, there is a lot of um, vault fast going on here with Boeing. And on the one hand, they argue, hey, the area is safe. On the other hand, they argue, we can't possibly clean it up. It'll take, you know, over a million cubic metres of soil. We'll have to moonscape the land. It will be worse for the environment. It'll take 500,000 years or 50,000 or whatever it was. I mean, a ridiculous amount of years. So on the one hand, it's safe. On the other hand, it can never be safe. So don't make us do it. None of that, that doesn't make sense. And then um, they're lobbying, as you said, they spend millions lobbying the government to get their way. Um, And not only is they're lobbying, there's also the revolving door. So people work in our government agencies, and then they go and work at the corporations. They work in lobbying firms for the corporations, and then they go and lobby their previous colleagues. And they're all friendly with them and have lunch with them and have their ear. And uh, one thing that Boeing argued in that case uh, was that it was a political decision against Boeing because the community got involved. Oh, how dare the community get involved in this public process? And (laughs) when when they're also lobbying. So it's, it's just, ah, I have no words <laughs> about how reprehensible um, this is. But that brings me to this question of regulatory capture. Um, they did it as well with the FAA. We, we know two planes crashed and they shouldn't have. Um, and the FAA was not quick to stop the planes. I mean, this is, that's a completely separate matter, but the 737 MAX, I mean, it shows the company culture and it shows where profits are worth more than people. Um, And that is not something that as a society, um, it's going to drown us all. We have an existential crisis facing us. So either I think we're going to make it together, or um, we're simply not. Um, And I really hope it's the former. Um, And to that, I, I do want to approach this subject of regulatory capture more. So did our Department of Toxic Control Substances, which is meant to look after Californians and protect us and the communities and our children, did they start treating Boeing like their client?
3: I'm not sure who wants to jump in, but from, from a non-expert, the, the ways that the DTSC has dealt with Boeing and NASA and the Department of Energy is is shocking, um, Dan Dan has taken the time to educate myself and and Jenny Knack, who I work with. You know, we're just we're just moms, so we don't have any of that expertise. And pretty much everything we know about the Santa Susana Field Lab has been through Dan and Denise and their their just um, commitment to helping us learn and understand what's going on. And some of the things I've seen, even even just from a common sense standpoint, um, you don't need more than like a fifth grade science understanding is just it doesn't make sense it, it doesn't help the community it, it clearly is always in the favor of the polluters and and my theory personally is that you know Boeing NASA and the Department of Energy they have other Superfund sites um, across the nation and and if if we get a thorough cleanup of the Santa Susana field lab which is not the worst in the nation you know we're a small site compared to many of the other Department of Energy sites. Um, If we were to get that cleanup here, then they're going to be held responsible in all these other places across the nation. You know, we have the potential to set a new standard and a new expectation of what a health protective cleanup could be. And so I feel like the DTSC, they don't want the liability of having to admit that they've done nothing for all these years and knowingly let the community be exposed to all this dangerous contamination and NASA and Department of Energy and Boeing, they don't want that accountability and they don't want to have to clean up their other sites or liability. They don't want the liability and they don't they don't want the responsibility. And so they'd rather play games and, and do favors for each other um, instead of do the right thing and actually put
2: people first.
0: Anyone else want to comment? Denise, Dan?
2: I think I recall uh, that um, DTSA actually did refer to Boeing or other polluters as clients. Um, we see the influence so strongly in so many ways. <clears throat> Let me just give you an example. In 2012, uh, we found in part of the greenwashing um, that, that uh, no, no, it's 2017 actually, um, Boeing put out a website, pr- produced a website called Protect Santa Susanna. And this website was Meant to get the public to submit public comments to DTSC, uh, urging the weakest possible cleanup standard. This is for the first round on the, the draft program uh, environmental impact report, and so that's not something you see corporations do. To have a website soliciting comments—that's something NGOs do often, but not not a corporation. And and the, the green one—it was—it was sickening. It was. You know, it didn't mention the contamination or cancers. It talked all about the wildlife and a bright future. It was green lighting and gaslighting at its best. And so we created a website called Protect Santa Susana from Boeing to sort of you know, counter all those claims. It's an example of, of, of how um, uh, just the t- kind of tactics that Boeing uses. Well, fast forward to a couple months ago, and um, Melissa and Jenny and other activists started seeing ads on their social media accounts, on Pandora, on everywhere saying cleanup can't wait. Go to cleanupFSFL.com. And you click that and it takes you to DTSC's website with a bunch of lies about the settlement agreement. And it it's, you know um, it was shocking to us that that this agency is uh, first of all, cleanup can't wait. Who's delaying it? They are. Um, second of all, the the tactics are just outrageous. Um, if, that, and I can't forget, Melissa can weigh in on on who some of the other um, clients were, and just the way that the agency was speaking about these agreements in such Orwellian double talk, they seemed to me like it was Boeing. The the the, the lawsuit that Dan mentioned. The only reason we could tell the difference between the DTSC lawyer and the Boeing lawyer was the clothes, right? <laughs> the Boeing lawyer had the nicer clothes. Other than that, they sounded like they were the same. Here we are, and this agency is sounding exactly like Boeing with just overt um, misrepresentations, uh, spending, that, you know, and I don't know how much it costs. I tried to do a little investigation. It looks like that's the first time they've run such an ad like on, on Facebook and all the other platforms. But, you know, give me a break. Cleanup can't wait. CleanupSSFL.com. com rejects to your page. That's that's Boeing. That's a Boeing tactic. It almost feels like they got Boeing's, you know, PR person on staff right now. But maybe they've been so close for so long that they just, they just talk and sound the same.
0: Mm, yeah. That is <sighs> so frustrating. Um, and this astroturfing and greenwashing and lobbying It's just all part of um, taking control of government policy um, and decreasing their um, cleanup liabilities. Unfortunately, turning it into a conservation easement is something that is really um, becoming fashionable across a lot of Superfund sites. And obviously, we're all in favor of protected wildlife places, right? But you're not protecting the wildlife you're actually not protecting anyone if you if all the toxins remain there, and I think that that's the issue that in that site that the site that you talk about protects Santa Susanna Field Lab. I went to that site, so it has lots of nice pictures of um, all these animals, but it doesn't show you that they're dying of cancer um, because they're on such a contaminated site. It's reprehensible. Um, But I think uh, the the legal issue here is that um, how much you clean up is dependent on um, the reasonable, foreseeable um, future use. And so if it's only um, a conservation easement, then they say, okay, so they count the human hours that – would be there so for instance you're only allowed to hike you know like three days a year and so you're only exposed to x many chem- i mean i am not a chemist or or a doctor um but uh something just doesn't make sense if we're going to have a pristine wildlife area to protect the wildlife why are we allowed to make it leave it contaminated for them it doesn't make any sense that's not what a you know wildlife preserve is And um, also, are we meant to be hiking in hazmat suits? Also, the other tactics in 2012, Boeing got an award for everything that it's doing. So wonderfully at Santa Susana. And this award is from um, the Wildlife Habitat Council. And that sounds like a really great nonprofit, right? The Wildlife Habitat Council. Wow, I might want to donate money to this. They seem to be preserving all these places. And then you find, well, who are their members and... Um, here are the lovely environmental members, some of them that I think everyone would know their names. Let's see. Okay, there's Boeing. Oh, Boeing's a member. It gave itself an award essentially. Then Monsanto. Oh, Monsanto has done so much for the environment. So much impact. Negative impact, but they've done a lot for the environment. That's true. Then we have DuPont. Okay, well, DuPont's just a fantastic environmental defender. Let's see who else is there. It's oh Chevron, <laughs> ExxonMobil. I mean, it's it's I I am out of words. You know, the whole point of this podcast is to speak, and yet when you see things like this, the Orwellian Wildlife Habitat Council giving itself awards, (laughs) I I mean, how do they come up with this stuff?
1: (laughs) They hire public relations and greenwashing experts to do it. And so on the issue of the habitat protection, it is just uh, shameless. This is a facility that Boeing and its predecessors and the Department of Energy and NASA and their predecessors contaminated heavily for half a century. They put the wildlife at great risk by spreading around perchlorate, TCE, heavy metals, dioxins, uh, radioactive materials. And then to try to get out of their obligation, which they signed in legally binding agreements in 2007 and for DOE and NASA again in 2010, to get out of agreements that they had signed to clean it up, they then create this front of saying that they want to protect the wildlife. They want to protect the wildlife by not cleaning up the contamination that puts the wildlife at risk. Now, their argument is that um, won't have homes on top of the house uh, the property. Um, and uh, but that does no good for the seven hundred thousand people who live in homes near the site. If you don't clean up the source, you keep the people who are nearby at risk. So it is shameless that a polluter would resort to such an effort to try to get a conservation easement to to get out of the obligation of protecting wildlife and the public from the contamination. And it is outrageous that government agencies, who are supposed to be protecting the public, act most of the time, much of the time, um, as though their real job is to protect the polluter. There are children who will be exposed to this contamination if it's not cleaned up as it migrates off-site. They will end up with brain cancers and leukemia and other uh, cancers that will threaten their lives. Same will be true for the adults. And that is because there is a huge amount of pollution on top of this hill that wants to migrate off that hill. And unless you clean up the source, you keep the people living nearby at risk. So you have a very simple calculation The polluter can save hundreds of millions of dollars if they can get the regulator to let them out of their obligations to clean up the contamination. They're simply transferring the cost of doing business from themselves who are responsible for the pollution to the innocent victims nearby who will face the risk through health impacts, including death. Um, And so from the point of view of a polluter, it is a really good deal, great rate of return. You spend $100,000 on a lobbyist, former aide to a governor, former secretary of PA, to lobby the current secretary of PA. If you make a few campaign contributions to the governor who hires those people, you can get a thousand-fold return on your investment, $100,000 lobbying expense, campaign expense, and you save hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup expenses. And the problem is, it's not cost-free for the people living nearby. It's costly. It's deadly.
3: To add insult to injury, um, Boeing is getting a, a giant tax donation, probably from this conservation easement. You know, and and it's just they get they get an A plus for greenwashing. And and again, like Dan said, this is it's less expensive to them. It doesn't set precedent. And and they come out looking like a you know, like a great all American company because on the surface it, it takes a little time to dig in and realize oh that that award they won is you know is just full of bloney. and you know the the million dollars they donated to an overpass bridge recently only gives access for those animals to get more contamination and you know it's it's hard because they had this huge working PR firm we've actually seen the PR firm um, was so proud of themselves for one day, they put their PR plan online and we got a copy of it. So if, if we're not just saying they hire PR firms like it's an idea. We They actually do. Um, we've seen it. It's it's horrific. And they come out looking all the better for it.
0: mm. And the, um, I read the, um, I guess it was released online accidentally, but the um, the makeover of public relations campaign, how to flip the narrative and focus on the potential and not on the negative history. Um, and part of that was to divide the community and divide the community by pointing out that a lot of sites that are contaminated are around um, poor communities of color and that Santa Susana Field Lab, if it were cleaned up first, would actually be inequitable. Now, I—I <laughs> I mean, this is this is one of this is how they use um, environmental justice and language to protect communities to divide our communities. We're all in this together. We all have the same goal: to clean up our contaminated sites so that all children can play. And, and just live their lives without fear of cancer and, and dying prematurely.
2: Uh, our organization is an environmental justice organization. And this is just uh, a, mis- it's, it's, first of all, um, Santa Susana community is very diverse. It's not all white people here, Simi Valley, they think their vines go to one particular place at one particular time in history. Not at all true. The community around Santa Susana has, has long fought, for example, for uh, radioactive waste Um, that is um, been found to, to, that is above background to not be sent to um, uh, hazardous waste sites in the state that are not licensed to accept it. Um, Communities like uh, Tettleman Hills and Buttonwillow that are already dealing with multiple problems and multiple issues. The um, Santa Susana community has been in solidarity from day one, going back quite a while um, on multiple attempts to to take some of that um, radioactive waste to, to those sites. Um, we have now we're talking about you know NASA talking about having um, you know Chumash and indigenous populations on this incredibly contaminated site. Um, there's multiple multiple reasons that the environmental justice argument, that sort of backwards way of looking at it, just doesn't fly. Um, and again, you know our the Santa Susana community is working with all there's other all of the impacted communities in the state. Not one of them is happy with DTSC. All of them have been let down by PTSD. We say the same sort of things happening in these communities. And what's happening now is these frontline communities are talking to one another and they're they're learning from one another. And they're standing in solidarity to, with one another. So, you know, that sort of, again, I got to use the word again, a an argument that Boeing is using around environmental justice. It just doesn't work. You know, it, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not, it doesn't match the facts on the ground um, and, um but that's, that's going.
0: Yeah. And when they flouted the idea of providing the land to um, indigenous tribes, uh, and if you say, well, actually, wait a second, if they have immunity from environmental laws, I mean, firstly, you're just giving them contaminated land. Secondly, is it ever going to be cleaned up? Why don't you wait until it's cleaned up? And then... Let's uh, let's do that. I think um, they look for narratives that um, make them appear as if, oh, they're the good guys here, and <laughs> and that's just even more appalling.
2: Yeah, let me tell you one other little anecdote about um, environmental justice. We had um, at one point there was uh, a trailer bill that would had some language that would have shown up the cleanup, and an email went out to environmental justice groups um, with a, a Latino surname saying uh, to oppose it that this would mean that the same sort of argument, uh, cleaner site um, for, for, for a non-EJ community, basically trying to twist it around. And, and because we do work, we, we are an environmental justice organization, and we do have relationships with all of these groups, we caught wind of it. And when I looked at the properties of the, of the document, it was Winston Hickox. Who was, you know, uh, was a former Cali PA secretary, I believe, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, who then became a lobbyist for Boeing. So he's drafting right there this language, this misinformation to try to get EJ groups to to oppose the bill. And it's just, you know, another example of um, you know, the 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 kind of tactics, the very dirty tactics they use to to divide folks. Um didn't work. Mm. Well, actually, the trailer bill didn't pass, but the environmental justice community is is we is we've been in in lockstep with all of the folks. All
0: right. Well, divide and conquer has and yes, yeah, sorry, go on, Melissa.
3: Oh well, I think I think what kind of was eye opening this year for us also was we started to get involved with the surface water runoff issues from the Santa Susana Field Lab, and realized um, through through paperwork that Boeing was proposing that the the rainwater runoff um on on one side of the hill coming down towards simi valley and the royal simi is untreated and reaches the caugus creek watershed and that watershed is used for growing crops all across ventura county that watershed is used um by it said a huge amount of residents use that for drinking water um recreation and um obviously the wildlife so so we started to realize this. This has a larger implication too, because now we're talking with you know farm workers, and we were able to align with one of the farm worker groups, the field workers, who you know they're they're in the soil that is that is directly you know potentially contaminated from the Santa Susana field lab, and and there's a huge environmental justice community within you know especially like Oxnard and uh, Port Hueneme where. Where the community is already struggling and doesn't have access to healthcare um, as readily, and and now these communities are potentially drinking contaminated rain runoff from from directly from Santa Susana Field Lab. You know, it's it's mind boggling when you think about it and how far reaching the contamination is, and the fact that you know probably any strawberry that anyone in America has ever eaten would probably grown in Ventura, um, potentially with contaminated. Um, water contaminated and, and the uh, Cuyahoga's Creek watershed. So, and, and that's why the DTSC was created, was to make sure that this kind of a problem doesn't spread out like it is. Um, and, and we saw the same thing when DTSC allowed Boeing to take thousands of pounds of um, radioactive, low-level radioactive uh, debris from the Santa Susana Field Lab. And they brought it to construction recyclers, um, metal, and yeah, metal and also concrete, thousands of tons of debris. And and then they took the other debris and they took them to exactly what Denise just mentioned: those um, environmental justice communities that are are famous, um, Buttonwillow and Kettleman City, where you know all of the children were born with cleft palates, and you know it's a, a largely migrant um, community, and they they intentionally took the waste there. And so the DTSC was meant to not only protect the local people from this kind of contamination, but they were supposed to stop the spread of it. Because again, when we're dealing with like plutonium 239, like Dan mentioned, that has a 24,000 year half-life. It's it's not going to stop being dangerous, whether you recycle it into new rebar and put it in a new building, it's, it's going to stay radioactive for thousands of years and, and and the DTSC is just letting this all happen. It's, it's not only going to impact us and our community. You know, it, this, is, this is the reason why they were created was to protect, you know, essentially all of every generation for thousands of years in, in America. And, and when this kind of, when, when they don't do their job now, it's, it's not even just our generation or even the next generation, but they are, they are putting at risk thousands, well, they're putting at risk millions of people's lives through generations and and once once this kind of problem has happened like Dan and Denise often say once the toothpaste is out you can't get it back in you know once you've recycled rebar that's radioactive how do you track that you you can't
0: yeah well long term protection of the environment should be the guiding criterion um in all public decisions i mean that's just common sense but it's also the law in california that's uh, the california environmental quality act and I, I just quoted from the act, actually, sorry. And I don't think that this principle has been uh, effectuated at all by our government. And um, the agency was also meant to take into account informed public uh, participation. Now, um, the current agreement um, was an in-camera agreement. It, it seems there was absolutely no uh, substantive public Comment um, were you able to provide comment to this agreement the current agreement that's in force? no the the community was completely locked out um, Dan Dan
3: can probably go further into it, but um, they not only kept the community out they even kept our local elected officials out.
1: so the this was a back room deal between a polluter and the regulator, the then-secretary of the California Environmental Protection Agency, Jared Blumenfeld, um, on video um, uh, in a public meeting uh, in February of 2020, repeatedly promised that there would be no negotiations with Boeing said it over and over again to a large crowd of elected officials, their staffs, and the public. And then less than a year later, um, the news administration entered into the very secret negotiations with Boeing they had promised they would not do. And when that became known, they then claimed that the negotiations would be uh, limited to carrying out the 2007 agreement. When they actually issued their new deal, it says it supersedes much of that agreement. They also had promised, when it had become known that they were involved in these negotiations, that anything that came out of it would be issued as a proposal for public input and that there would be full environmental review before adopting it. But when they actually announced the agreement, it was immediately effective. And uh, there was no environmental review, which is why there's now a lawsuit over it. And there was no opportunity for public input. So you don't do something you're proud of uh, behind closed doors. You don't do something that is protective of the public and then freeze the public out from being able to review and comment on it. So this was simply a dirty deal between a polluter and a captured regulator, uh, placing the public at risk who both the polluter and the regulator have immense obligations towards, which they just breached.
0: And were you at a public meeting, Dan, where you were not allowed to speak and in fact told you had to leave before providing your public comment?
1: Some, several years ago, NASA, which is responsible for part of the contamination of the site, held what they claimed was a public hearing on their draft Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement. But when the public and I arrived at the hotel room where this hearing was supposed to be held, we discovered to our surprise that there were no chairs. There was no podium. There was no uh, set of hearing officers. Instead, there were simply some NASA staffers standing next to easels with propaganda signs on them and when we tried to be able to testify again it's a public hearing Um, when we called the public around so they could hear what we had to say we were blocked physically by the NASA officials when uh, there was an effort to set up a PowerPoint projector and a screen so that we could use visuals for the testimony we wanted to give at this public hearing Uh, NASA ordered the uh, projector disconnected from the electric outlet and physically put their bodies between the screen and the projector. And when I was standing in line to be able to make my comments to a uh, person who was sitting at a card table with a little laptop, that's how you were going to be able to make your comments. Uh, NASA called the police and had me forcibly removed from the hearing room. Understand this is a public hearing by a public agency on a matter of great public concern, whether or not the public is going to be protected or endangered by what NASA was proposing. And the entire reason that they did this is because what they were proposing was to breach the agreement they had signed and to leave something like 95% of the contaminated soil cleaned up when they promised to clean up all of it. I've done this work for more than half a century. Nothing like that has ever happened to me before. Um, and the police told me that I, as they, with <laughs> weapons on their uh, belts, uh, and ordered me out at the hearing room um, with a camera uh, recording with this, they said that I had left voluntarily. I said I didn't leave voluntarily. You ordered me out, threatening me with arrest if I didn't from a public hearing where I was to testify about the great harm that NASA was intending to do by changing this commitment they had made. So the irony is that the NASA is breaking its legally binding agreement to clean up the site, as is the Department of Energy and as is Boeing. And uh, where law enforcement is called is to prevent members of the public from pointing that out.
0: If we are not able to comment, on a matter of public importance that by law requires public comment. It is subject to judicial review and such laws can be invalidated based on the insufficiency of the process. That is what you have in a supposed democracy. But apparently (laughs) we we, um, are not allowed to make public comment because um, I suppose what you were going to say was quite threatening to their interests. Otherwise they would have no issue with you making your public comment.
3: It's also not the only meeting we've been to where they've had either armed security or the police. And and again, it's like, well, we're, we're just moms. It, it does feel, it does feel intimidating.
0: Yes. Speak freely, please. And then while they have their tanks facing you, it's exactly what they do with protests. They have, if you see the the police are armed with military equipment and, it's escalating situations instead of de-escalating and letting people um, exercise their First Amendment rights and actually follow the law because the process requires informed public participation, not uh, silent public and not in-camera agreements. So where are we at now? If um, the laws so I know there's a law, pending lawsuit, um, the Parents Against Santa Santa Field Fe Lab, Physicians for Social Responsibility and others have taken the Department of Toxic Substances Control to uh, court um, in Ventura County, saying you were denied um, and informed public participation. So the process um, was not followed. Also, that um, the decision making didn't follow the mandate for long term protection of the environment, um, which seems to be the case. But where are we now outside of the lawsuit? What is NASA, Department of Energy, and Boeing? What are they? saying they're going to do now after all these years of not having cleaned up um, the contaminated site?
1: The situation that we're in now is that agreements were signed in 2007 that required the full cleanup of the site by 2017. Follow-on agreements were entered into in 2010 that refined those requirements for the Department of Energy and NASA, still requiring a full cleanup, and still requiring it to be done by 2017. We're now uh, five years beyond that deadline, and the promised cleanup not only hasn't been completed, it hasn't started. So a secret deal between the Newsom administration and Boeing, if it isn't overturned, would allow Boeing to walk away from most of its contamination. Department of Energy has issued a final environmental impact statement saying its preferred alternative is to breach its agreement and leave something on the order of 95% of its contamination not cleaned up. And NASA has done the same. The state hasn't enforced any of these agreements. And with them having cut the deal with Boeing, NASA and DOE have the clear signal that they also will be let out of their obligations. So the fundamental question now is whether there will be pushback Uh, in the courts and elsewhere to try to enforce these original agreements. The county of Los Angeles, the county of Ventura, and the city of Los Angeles have all passed resolutions um, contemplating legal action if the agreements aren't carried out. And there is a lawsuit um, that has been filed um, by uh, the parents group and physicians and others Uh, to overturn the agreement because it was done without any environmental review. So it's a long fight. The fight is still continuing, but it's in a pretty bad state at the moment. Um, Promises that were made that were legally required to be carried out have been simply ignored. And the new administration has shown itself to be exceedingly cozy with these polluters that are threatening so many people and their health in Southern California. And so there is a sickness, not just the contamination that can cause illness, but a political sickness, which is the uh, infection um, of government that's supposed to protect the people, infection by the money and power of polluters uh, and the capture of regulatory agencies. So it's a tremendous fight. Between people trying to protect everyday people and polluters trying to uh, get out of their obligations to clean up immensely hazardous uh, mess that they have created,
0: There are one thousand three hundred and twenty nine Superfund sites on the national priorities list. But there are many, many more sites, just like Santa Susana, that are toxic, causing illness and cancer to local communities and that aren't on the NPL. How does the federal government decide what goes on the national priorities list? And why are there so many sites that are toxic, like Santa Susana, that aren't on the national priorities list?
1: So um, much of it is kind of hand-waving, Uh, The Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard in the San Francisco Bay Area is a Superfund site. Treasure Island, which also has radioactive contamination from the uh, nuclear Navy, a few miles away, is not. Um, San Joseana is kind of a strange case because at that point, the state of California was doing a better job of cleaning up contaminated sites, or wanted to for Santa Susanna, than was the U.S. EPA. And so the state declined to agree to have uh, on the federal Superfund list, because it was on the state Superfund, and EPA had threatened that if it did get put on the federal list, they would clean it up to a weaker standard. So much of this is haphazard. The bottom line is that there are tens of thousands of contaminated sites in the country And whether they're on the Superfund list or not, very few of them are getting cleaned up effectively.
0: Maybe I misunderstood you. You said there are tens of thousands of toxic sites across the United States?
1: Yes. So there is a law called CERCLA, which is the Superfund law. And then there's a law called RCRA, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. And large numbers of toxic sites are being regulated under RCRA rather than under Superfund. And uh, that doesn't mean they're being regulated any better or any worse. There are many Superfund sites that are being cleaned up very poorly, but there are tens of thousands of contaminated sites around the country. And this is just the way we as a nation and many other nations as well have handled things, which is that we've been very, very lax in preventing pollution, and then very lax in cleaning it up. We seem to have not viewed this planet as a beautiful gift to be preserved, but as kind of an ashtray in which to dump our waste. And those wastes are exquisitely toxic, long-lived, and lethal. So um, we inherited a beautiful planet, and we seem to be doing nothing but fouling it, with radioactive and toxic waste.
0: Oh God! And communities live within a few miles of these toxic sites. And and you said before that um, we are just not cleaning these sites up. These sites remain toxic, and there doesn't seem to be a clear timeline and a clear activity happening now to clean these sites up.
1: Well, it's worse than that. So please understand. There's an economic incentive to not control your pollution. It costs money to try to uh, make sure that pollution is kept within your boundaries, doesn't contaminate soil, groundwater, or air. It's cheaper to just let that stuff out. And therefore, it's also cheaper to hire a lobbyist or make a campaign contribution to uh, government officials who are in charge with regulating you to make sure that they don't regulate you effectively. And then once the site becomes so contaminated that it requires cleanup, it is again cheaper to hire lobbyists and make campaign contributions to make sure that the regulators who should have prevented you from contaminating in the first place don't require you to clean up most of the contamination. So at site after site after site, innocent members of the public who had nothing to do with causing the pollution end up getting cancers, leukemias, uh, their offspring with birth defects because of pollution that these entities, um, to save money, um, decided to transfer the cost of doing business to the innocent people nearby.
0: Yet we all live in the same ashtray, some closer than others, I suppose.
1: Right. We don't... How do I say this? Um, In economic terms, it's called externalizing the cost of doing business. Rather than you paying the cost of doing business by controlling the pollution and by cleaning up any that you don't, haven't controlled, you transfer that cost to the people whose children end up with a leukemia or brain cancer, the tremendous medical cost, and then the human cost of the illness, and for many of them, the deaths. And It's just fundamentally um, uh, unethical. I often say that there are two golden rules. One uh, is the one we all think of and know, to treat your neighbor as yourself, and you certainly wouldn't want to pollute yourself. Um, The second is um, the famous alternative version of it, which is the golden rule is that whoever has the gold makes the rules. And most struggles uh, are between which version of the golden rule will apply, whether we're going to love our neighbor as ourself and try to take care of them, Or are we going to let whoever has the gold, whoever has the money, whoever has the power do whatever they want, even though that ends up hurting, injuring, killing significant numbers of innocent people?
0: I readily agree with uh, your assessment. Sometimes I think that representative democracy is like an adjective strangling a noun. (laughs) Um, If people were involved in their government and they saw what was happening, maybe Uh, we wouldn't be in this situation.
1: Well, and that's why the people who have a vested interest in continuing to cut corners, save money, um, and be able to therefore pollute, um, they also have a vested interest in the truth not coming out. We therefore don't get enough of the benefit of um, the kind of uh, careful scrutiny that a genuine... um, the press uh, would provide. It's often said, as you know, that um, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Dirty things happen in the dark. Well, the polluters get away with what they're doing, which is not just polluting the environment and damaging human beings, but also polluting the regulatory system that's supposed to prevent that. They can only get away with that in the dark.
0: Right. And this is why We need to uh, speak to everybody and enlighten them about the issues. The job of the government is to govern. The job of a regulatory agency is to regulate, not to um, help corporate interests. Uh, Unfortunately, if we continue to have the ability of people to leave these positions of power and immediately go and lobby for the very same corporations or even Become CEOs of these corporations that they were meant to regulate, and then then go back into government. This revolving door is, is such a pernicious problem in our democracy. Um, lobbying is a pernicious problem in our democracy. It is. Um, I think it's really a euphemism for corruption. It, it really benefits um, whoever has the most resources. And, of course, large corporations have way more resources than um, local communities living next to Superfund sites, which generally are poor communities of colour. So there's a massive problem of environmental and economic and, and racial justice. Because of, you know, social media, um, my ability to meet other
3: parents going through similar situations has just been terrifying and eye-opening Um, and also very helpful and makes me feel less lonely, but, um, it's, it's shocking to find out how common these superfund sites are. And, and again, not all of them are national superfund sites. For example, the Santa Susana field lab is not a national superfund site. It's a California superfund, um, site. And so the, and, and the, the kind of flippancy that these are, are given by our local elected officials is just it's, it's wrong on so many levels. And I think there's just this general feeling like if it was really dangerous, the government wouldn't let us live here. And instead, we're finding more and more that the government causes these problems. They don't want to take the responsibility for it. Or they're working with these corporations who don't want to take responsibility for it. And so nobody is, is standing up and saying, like, no, this, this is dangerous. You're, you shouldn't live here. I feel like it should be a national headline. Every single day, because of of not only, again, the short-term harm that it's causing people who live here right now, but you know they're they're doing a lot of research and finding that DNA is being damaged, that is being passed on to descendants, not only with wildlife but with humans as well. and And the kind of sicknesses that are happening you know, financially, economically, socially, um, besides just physically are are very long reaching. Um, I know at least with pediatric cancers, Fifty percent of all marriages fail, and fifty percent of all um, families file for bankruptcy. You know, my daughter's my daughter's cancer because she had it once, and again, it was very rare. And then she, when she relapsed, she needed a bone marrow transplant. Um, we estimate that her treatment probably cost about three million dollars, and and the public's helping pay for that um, through their insurance premiums and through you know the Children's Hospital Los Angeles, who has to fundraise that. It's it's not like it's it's not like it's um. It's it's hurting the whole community again financially, socially. Um, the the there's no long term benefit at all, and this is happening. And so there was a protest um, in Washington D.C. just a few weeks ago by a group called Safer EPA, and it's a group of parents um, from across across the nation. We had people come in from Hawaii. Um, all the way from the Midwest, the East Coast, the Pacific. I mean, everybody showed up and started protesting because the EPA is not is not putting these as, as top priority. And even when they do cleanups, they're not to the most health protective standards and they're not with the strongest science. It's, it's always like the the families and the children are the smallest priority and profit for these companies and financial feasibility and just all of it, you know, it's, it's very backwards. And, and we're not only hoping to get the Santa Susana field lab cleaned up, but with parents against Santa Susana field lab, we want to help change the entire national culture towards superfund sites and contamination and, um, making sure that people are aware and, and educating them so they can actually petition their elected officials and, and they can empower, um, like as you mentioned the the many um, sacrifice sites that are across America where where companies dump things or or for example, across the indigenous communities it's it's i mean it's it's environmental genocide, what we're doing to the indigenous people in America uh, with uranium mining with with all kinds of horrible um, environmental injustice against them, we want to help. Solve that problem as we can, but the Santa Susana Field Lab is, is our first
2: step. These are these are tough days, man. Um, every, I, I just I second everything that Melissa said. There's, there's this trend right now. I'm very concerned about the state of our democracy. Let's put it that way. Let me start with that. We have really, really, real threats to the idea that that any kind of government, we the people, by the people, for the people, um, is is a good thing. Even our voices actively arguing against it. Um, we have a real threat to our democracy, and it seems like it is coming from the right. But there's also a threat to democracy that have been going on within our agencies, and as you can even see within what happened in the city of Los Angeles this week, that the the effort to try to influence the redistricting process, um, if, even if you take race out of it, the power play there is also um, anti-democratic. These agencies. Have been going towards, leaning towards autocratism for a long time. And I would say the same thing about Governor Newsom. Um, you know, the um, he, he has been criticizing Trump, but he acts like a king himself. He thinks, you know, I'm going to veto this, veto the field workers, veto the, you know, releasing um, parking tickets for, from homeless people. I mean, these are things that, that the, you know, governors have veto power. But when you have, a, um, you know, the people voting on something, the legislature approving it, Um, And you, you know, I was very taken aback by some of his vetoes, but more than anything, his leadership, his administration has been extremely autocratic when it comes to the regulatory agencies. We see this on a state water board with the head of the state water board quitting and basically saying that, you know, the drought um, measures that they wanted to take were continually shot down by the administration. People get replaced. That's what happened with the LA Water Board. So I think the last thing I, I just want to say is that we believe in participatory democracy. When you have 300 people show up at a water board hearing and you have numerous elected officials there and speaking out and you have numerous public health and advocacy organizations and, and they they're, they're we're completely um, not listened to, it, it really makes you you doubt even in more progressive states just how much of a participatory democracy do we have. When the, when the administration pretty much moves out people it wants, puts in people it wants, and does what it wants, makes deals with who it wants, shuts the community out of this deal, um, and and you know uh, despite the public participation process, either doesn't have one or ignores what the public says, it gives me you know great pause. Um, in in some ways, then you know I think Newsom is no different than some of the some of the uh, autocrats that he's criticizing in the way that he's he's running these agencies for sure, for sure.
0: We cannot be apathetic. If if we are apathetic, then we've lost the fight already, right? So we have to find the strength to continue and um, to be present and to participate as loud as we can, um, in order not to lose our democracy.
3: And you know what gives me hope is, um, you know, I I'm a I'm a Christian. And so um, my faith does that a lot, but also um, how many good people there are. And, and this, it just kind of hit me new yesterday that, you know, this, this is such a hard journey. This, this kind of, I haven't, I have no background in politics or science or environmentalism. Um, it's everything, every part of it is out of my uh, comfort range. And yet, um, and Everything is out of my comfort range. And, and worst of all, the only reason why I'm here is because my daughter got cancer and obviously the there's just pain every day having to deal with this, um, with the Santa Susanna field lab cleanup. But the thing that comforts me is how many amazing people there are trying to do good. Like Denise and Dan are unsung heroes. Um, Mr. Rogers said that whenever there's whenever there's tragedy or disaster, you know, look for the helpers, and and so many good people are around and are trying and are helping. And when I speak to people in the younger generations and college students, they really want to see change and they're willing to. I think that's a difference. They're willing to even sacrifice for it with finances and and career goals. And you know, there's just a lot of sincerity there um, that I really admire and that's that's the good thing going forward and and why I think there is still hope for our country.
0: We bring the hope, right? And then we share it and we can um, strengthen it. Now, just my last question is, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you really want to um, talk about? I know we've gone over time and I really appreciate your uh, extended time here, but um, if there's anything that I've missed that you want to discuss... Well, we have a change.org petition. Um, that's a
3: really easy way for people to get involved and show, you know, their, their support for what we're doing. Um, there's a fantastic documentary called in the dark of the Valley. Uh, it's currently streaming on Peacock TV and that has just, um, does a great job of kind of showing what's going on and the people involved. And that was in, nominated for an Emmy, um, recently. And then, um, Finally, you know, if, if people would like to donate, we are fundraising for the cleanup and for the lawsuit that we're currently in right now. Um, I hope that's okay to pitch, but you know, we, we're we're a grassroots group, and we're we're trying to do our best to take on a giant, and it's difficult. It's it's um, it's a lot of work and a lot of resources that that our group doesn't currently have.
0: Yep, I will link to um, the change.org petition and to your website. Oh, thank
3: you. Fantastic.
0: Thank you very much for your insight and your time today to discuss this pernicious issue. It was uh, very instructive. Thank you so much.
2: This has been a, a really great conversation. Very comprehensive. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having us. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.